Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Disturbance is an integral part of any ecosystem, but as is so often the case, as humans enter into the picture more and more and we exact more of a toll on this planet, disturbances are getting more intense and more frequent. And my guest today likes to study how increases in disturbance, intensity, and frequency are affecting natural communities such as forests. Joining us is Dr. Brian Buma, who specializes in disturbance ecology. He's got a lot of really cool projects, and we're only going to touch on a few of them today, but his work is really important in understanding ecosystem resilience and recovery. How are they going to change? How might they shift? All these questions and more are really important to try to understand as we continue to move into a future dominated by human disturbances. Even more exciting is the fact that you can contribute to work like this. So stick around towards the end of the episode so you can hear more about ways that you can get involved in collecting data. But before we get to that, I have a really, really exciting announcement for you to hear. Hey friends, are you interested in plant science and conservation but don't know how or where to start? Well, listen up because I have really exciting news for you. In 2022, the Oak Spring Garden Foundation will award their annual Early Career Fellowships, which includes two plant science-related fellowships. The first is the Fellowship in Plant Science Research, and this will be awarded to one plant scientist with preference for those working on organismal plant biology. So if you have interest in a specific type of plant, a genus, maybe a species, that's the one for you. The second is the Fellowship in Plant Conservation Biology, which will be awarded to one plant conservation biologist who is working on projects to conserve plants as well as the landscapes and ecological systems that they comprise. Now, my favorite part about this is both of the fellowships will include a $10,000 individual grant and a two to eight week stay at the Oak Spring Estate in Upperville, Virginia. I have been to this estate. It is amazing what's going on there. There is so much potential, and I must say the accommodations are quite cozy. This isn't your average field station, people. Best of all, there is no entry fee to apply, and applicants that are not selected for the fellowship can opt in to be considered for the interdisciplinary residency program, which includes a two- to five-week stay on-site with another individual grant. Now pay attention. This is the most important part. Applications are due by July 15th, and the residents and fellows will be selected by committees of relevant professionals. To learn more about these fellowships and or the residency programs, please check out their website, osgf.org. Once again, that is osgf.org. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. All right. I really hope you'll consider those opportunities, but on with the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Brian Buma. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Brian Buma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here. But first, let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. So I am a plant ecologist or a disturbance ecologist in particular. So I study things like uh, how communities respond to disturbances like fires and wind, and in particular, how the edges of those things respond. So my interest is in climate adaptation, and one important aspect of that is the migration and movement of species in response to climate change. And things like disturbances and warming and disasters give opportunity for that. So I tend to seek out areas of recent wildfires or windstorms or landslides, and then look at how the community is responding and changing. 
Right on. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, you read the news, there's no shortage of that in a lot of ways, but it also gives, you know, ecologists like yourself a lot of opportunities to understand these dynamics. But what brought you to this in the first place? I mean, were you always a plant person or do you just enjoy ecology and understanding the distributions of species? You know, where did this all start for you? I was always an exploration person. I always liked wandering around in the woods. I grew up in the Northwest, um, north of Seattle, a couple hours north of Seattle, and spent most of my childhood wandering around the woods. And I always found it interesting to figure out what's where and why. Um, Maps always fascinated me. And so it was a natural jump to distributions of species, you know, being out in the wilderness and thinking, well, why is the species here and, and why is it not over there? And, and it's, a, it's a natural jump into where things are and biogeography. And then my interest in forests, because I, I grew up in a big old forest, um, led me to actually to disturbances because forests are fairly slow. They're fairly slow moving on human timescales in many ways, in many respects, um, up until they're not, up until you have those disturbances. And so those quick sort of catalysts for change became an interesting target of investigation because a lot of stuff happens in a very short period of time, even in a forest which has trees that live a thousand years. Hmm. A lot of stuff happens in the decade right after, um, you know, a fire or a windstorm. So the love of maps and the love of, of big old trees that when they change, they change quick is what brought me here, basically. Right on. And that's a really interesting sort of observation to make early on, but then to, you know, devote your career to it. There's, you know, a lot of areas you could go with that. But what, you know, in particular, is it just the interest in trees per se, or the fact that the forests make up this ecosystem? I mean, they really are the backbone of it that kind of drives you to look at them in particular. Yeah, I I think it's because it's a little of both. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely a love of large trees and, and slow, you know, big ecosystems that are just so much more long lived than we are. You know, you could could scramble over stumps when I was 10 years old, you know, and see back a thousand years, you know, in, in a red cedar stump, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, but from a functional point of view, and the reason it still captures my attention and imagination is Forests especially are one of the more managed ecosystems we have and fairly important for our carbon strategies and how we deal with the environment. You know, they're they're essentially a crop, but they're a crop that not only provides us with wood, you know, with a product, but also has this climate regulation goal or purpose, I guess, um, when we look at it that way, which also, you know, we can manage and use. And then, then you have the whole other side of natural ecosystems and forests being the backbones of wilderness areas and all sorts of conservation values. So there's this dual nature to them where we want to manage them pretty heavily for water and timber and, and carbon, but we also need them intact and um, you know, untouched in old growth forests. So uh, the whole system is fascinating to me. And so understanding where they are, where they're moving, how they're developing is, is pretty darn critical and has kept me entertained for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine there is many lifetimes worth of careers wrapped up in these sorts of questions, and it's it's cool to you know carve your niche out of that. But yeah, this dynamic between sort of humanity, cultural uses of, of forests that stretch back millennia, you know, it's this dynamic. It's it's an interesting interplay, and and the way you just said that kind of struck me because you know I live in the prairies right now, and yeah, we have messed them up big time, but I don't think they have nearly sort of the management goals 
yet. I mean, they, we should get there, but yet that forests have had. And, and yeah, it is this amazing dynamic and interplay between our culture and especially as we modernize and what's going on in what we consider wild spaces and ecology. Oh, I agree. And it's to tie it back to the biogeography. You're, you're totally right that this management is not new, you know, and so this way of thinking about ecosystems and our being in ecosystems and our not being separate from ecosystems is is not new a lot of times we think it is you know or we casually may think it is but it's definitely not to tie it back to the um, biogeography question for example in the northwest and especially in southeast alaska where i used to live you can come across crabapple forests um, crabapple galleries Hmm. that are just sort of wild and they're sort of out in the middle of nowhere usually in rivers riversides in the mountains and you'll wonder why are those there and they were there because they were planted by first nations people couple hundred years ago, you know, and, and that whole, that whole tragedy has unfolded and, and, and gone. And now all of a sudden you have these sort of isolated populations, which are not where you'd expect them to be. And you can't tease apart why they're there without this human story, without this management story. There's just so few places on the planet where people haven't left a mark as part of the ecosystem. And certainly now we're dominating in a way right. we never did before. So that's, that's our big challenge. It's not the fact that they're is a mark it's the fact that it's becoming a deleterious mark <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is a nice gentle way of putting it but i agree it's it's you know delicate <laughs> It is this interesting thing that you have to constantly balance, I think, as a scientist, especially because you're trying to understand these dynamics, but you're also trying to be honest about the history of, of humanity, really, and, and sort of the interplay of how things have changed, even with just our culture. But this idea that forests can change, I mean, I think people can kind of get their heads wrapped around that. But, you know, you mentioned things like migration and movement, which you know, we don't necessarily readily apply to things like plants and especially not trees that can live thousands of years. But it's true. I mean, forests change, but they also move. The species within them essentially migrate, but they just do it differently. They do it by generation. Yeah, it is a migration or a rebound. I mean, the best example or one of the best examples is the last ice age, you know, 15,000 mm. or so years ago, you had ice almost down to where you are now. And you know, all of Canada essentially was covered. And of course, there's forests in Canada now. Right. And many species are still moving north after that event. Like we still see the effects of that event in the biogeography in where you see plants today, which is a challenge to understanding where species are because you have to think back 15,000 years. So, for example, lodgepole pine, which is one of the most ubiquitous species in the Western US, if you've ever been to Colorado or Wyoming, you've seen them. It ranges all the way up to the Yukon territory. And in fact, it it gets a, a couple hundred or about a hundred kilometers into the Yukon territory in northern Canada. So you might wonder why does it stop there? And if you thought it was climate or soil or something, you'd probably be wrong because what appears to be happening is it appears to still be moving north after the hmm. last ice age. It just goes really, really slow because other species got there first. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult for a tree to move into a forest. There's not a lot of light, there's a lot of competition. So what researchers, and this isn't my work, this is um, excellent work by Jill Johnstone um, and a few other folks um, up in Canada and, and Alaska uh, have found is that after every fire, the species will move north a little bit. It'll basically disperse north. So if there's a fire on that Northern edge, the last few lodgepole, 
that it kills everything, and lodgepole does really well after fires, it's highly adapted to fires, it'll spread north. It, its seeds will go in all directions, of course, but some of them will go a little bit north. They, they tend to fall not too far from the tree. It's a serotonous tree, so its mm. cones open after a fire. The seeds more or less fall down, but, you know, they, of course, spread a little bit. Uh, and so after every fire on that northern edge, it'll advance 50 meters, you know, and it's still doing that <laughs> 15,000 years later, it's still doing that. And so, you know, how far can it go? Difficult to say, because we don't really know where its northern range edge is going to sort of settle out. And of course, in a changing climate, that's almost a moot point, but uh, <laughs> right. it's still moving north. And so if you were to look at the distribution now, you know, without taking that 15,000 year history into account, you'd miss some things, you know, and we see that actually in a lot of species. A lot of species which um, don't disperse plants, which don't disperse well or far, I should say, we see that their ranges are often constrained by history that happens you know, many, many <laughs> millennia ago, and they're still moving. One of my study systems is uh, Alaska yellow cedar, which actually ranges from California to Alaska. It appears to still be moving in response to the last ice age. It's very, very slow. You know, we've <laughs> mapped the edge. And the edge looks like an edge. It's like a patch. There'll be a patch of 10 trees here. Oh, wow. you know, and 10 miles away, there'll be a patch of one. There'll be one tree and then there'll <laughs> be 30 trees in a different spot. So it's like this weird patchy distribution. Mm. And the best hypothesis so far is not that it's limited in any sort of way on the northern edge by climate or soils or even disturbance history, but just that it's really unlikely to move into a pre-established plant community. And so it just is slowly progressing. Uh, away from areas where it hit out during the last ice age. And it just, it's just that slow. So yeah, when you think about the last ice age, or really when you think about history in general, as it relates to biogeography and distributions, you got to realize it was only like 10 <laughs> generations ago for some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's wild when you start doing the math, you know, just back of the uh, envelope sort of math with that stuff, because yeah, for an organism that lives thousands of years, I mean, that's, Oh, geez, that is recent. And you think of all of the implications of like species loss since the Pleistocene, but just the glacial in and out in general. I mean, it is to me one of the coolest things to sort of try to get your head wrapped around in the context of, like you said, biogeography, species distributions, because to think that humanity, we're here today and this is exactly the end point. This is the finish line. This is where everything wanted to be. No, 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 no. And it was probably different within every interglacial period. It's just which players made it, which didn't. And how have those dynamics changed since then? And, and then of course, going back to what we you know started this on, adding humanity into the mix complicates the understanding at least, but definitely influences how those dynamics play out. Oh, for sure. And it really puts the pace of human-caused climate change in perspective, I think. So mm. when we talk about, you know, that, like, for example, yellow cedar, this slow progression over the past, say, 10,000 years up there, 12,000 years since the glacial retreat up there, um, the fact that they've moved a couple hundred kilometers is pretty slow, but you can still see that. And so uh, it, it has gone on. And then you add on this problem that yellow cedar is having. And the reason I got into yellow cedar in the first place is, it's dying right, really rapidly up in mm. the far north, and it's dying because it's losing snow. Hmm. So um, the climate has warmed above the rain-snow threshold, so it still gets the same amount of precipitation. It's just not falling as snow. Uh -huh. uh, it's falling as rain. And so when you do get a cold snap in the late spring, 
which of course still happen, you know, cold snaps still happen, um, that'll freeze the soil, which those trees tend to die. Um, so you'll you'll get frozen soils, which kill these, these massive trees can be killed by a little cold snap, but huh. it's because it, it freezes the roots in the soil. So that that's what got me into it, is like, why is this happening? But you put the pace of that movement, like the pace at which we are losing snow due to climate change in the context of the pace at which species can move mm. to stay ahead of that, like species that need snow, like yellow eater. And it really just shows the disparity. You know, you have a species which can move a couple hundred kilometers in a thousand years or a couple thousand years, and then you're losing snow at a pace of 20 kilometers a year or a decade. It doesn't take long for those lines to intersect and you start to worry about the fate of the species as a whole. Yeah, I just helped uh, teach a climate change course for non-majors, which was an interesting experience, but it also kind of was like an uplifting one in a weird way because I feel like, you know, the younger generations kind of have it they, they get it a little bit better than even mine do. But still, you have this idea where, the, you know, you'll give them papers or articles to read. And they say, well, the climate has always changed. But it's that rate you talked about, the speed at which it's happening. Sure, things have changed a lot in the past, sometimes in ways far more drastic in the long term. But in terms of how quickly it's happening, that's terrifying. And you have to, again, couch this in the fact that plants, like you said, migrate generationally. So things take longer than, say, it would for a bear, which even bears apparently are having trouble with the speed of things. So, you know, just because an organism is mobile doesn't mean much, but definitely hurts uh, non-mobile organisms in the context of how quickly these things can shift. Yeah. And it's one of the more interesting conversations I definitely have with my ecology students as well, because I teach ecology every year. And and for many students, it still becomes a surprise that the world is constantly changing, or, or at least it, they, they find that's an interesting point. And I think it's one of the more exciting things that's come into science. You know, I, I love it as well, just to think of the world as in constant motion, and there is really no reference point, because it adds this fun challenge, you know, to, <laughs> yeah. to thinking about conservation. I, I started as a conservationist in, in Hawaii, and we always had this debate, like, if we're going to restore stuff, to what point do we restore stuff? Like, what is our reference? And it it brings humanity into the equation because you have to make those sorts of decisions. And I enjoy that that challenge. But the pace of this unintentional change and the pace of this grand experiment in climate warming is what's killing a lot of things. And and yeah, to bring it back to trees, that's the that's the real trick. You know, you have some trees, of course, can move quite quickly. Um, some trees can reach maturity in a decade and disperse their seeds far and wide, and it's fine. But for many of the species in temperate rainforests where I work, or the boreal, or even tropical rainforests where they're extremely specialized for particular climates, and you have a very thick ecosystem around them, <laughs> it takes a while to reach maturity, and it's very difficult for seeds to get established and move mm. um, because they're trying to move into something. It's not like they move independent of the other species. They have to deal with the other species. And forests are a rough place to be a tree, uh, <laughs> to yeah. be a baby tree. Great place to be an adult tree, but rough place to be a baby tree. And so this migration of things, of species into established ecosystems becomes very, mm. very challenging for, you know, well, any species, but especially <laughs> right. for generational species that have to grow up in those highly competitive environments. Yeah. And so thinking of the example with the yellow cedar that you mentioned, uh, you said that it's the, really the lack of snow and freezing, which to me just surface value sounds a little like a conundrum. How does like freezing it's and a, not having snow, dyna how does that play out on like, I guess, a physical level? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a wonderfully counterintuitive uh, <laughs> 
sort of story. And I absolutely love it because you often get that exact reaction, especially from people who are skeptical of climate change um, in general, or just sort of more skeptical of things in general. And so I, I love this story. So it's it's a long one. Uh, it took a long time to figure out, I guess is what I mean. And, hmm. and this is an example of where like all science, my work is really standing on the shoulders of giants, sure. um, you know, in terms of figuring this out. So I'll give a shout out to my colleague and friend, Paul Hennon, who's retired with the Forest Service, but he did essentially all of this work. People started noticing yellow cedar was dying in the 1980s. And actually there had been large patches of dead cedar noted early in the 1900s, in fact. Mm. Um, and it's big and nobody lives up there. Or very <laughs> few people live up there. I lived in Juneau, which is the largest town at 30,000 people. But other Jeez. than that, it's, there's very few. And so not a lot of people noticed, but there was a lot of dead trees out there. And so he tried to figure it out. And so from the 80s through the 90s, you have this wonderful series of papers where it's, is this fungus? No. Is this an insect? No. Is this, it is just very methodical. Like, could it be this? No. Could it be that? No. Could it be this? No. And so the, the cold case, you know, finally broke, so to speak, when they overlaid a map of where the yellow cedar was dead with a map of where snow had disappeared, where there was mm. snow loss. And so then it was like, well, how is this working? And so snow provides a wonderful insulative blanket in the winter. Mm. So it can be negative 20 outside. If you go out and you put a thermometer under the layer of snow, assuming that snow fell kind of early in the season, it'll be right around freezing. It'll right, be right around zero C at the soil surface mm. and definitely right below, you know, like a couple centimeters down. It'll be at about freezing. Um, the soil surface doesn't usually freeze if there's snow over it because snow packs a lot of air in there. It's just, it's a great insulator. Hmm. I mean, it's not warm, but it's, it's a great insulator. It's called the subnivium, that environment below the snow surface. So, so subnival, which is for snow. So subnivium and all sorts of critters live down there during the winter um, because it's this great refuge from the cold weather and being in the Midwest. I mean, you're no, no stranger to cold winters. Oh, at yeah. Times. <laughs> so what happens is when you remove that snow, you no longer have that insulation. And so while the average air temperature may be warmer, the ground starts following the fluctuations of the atmosphere. And so you can take a temperature logger and put it under snow and you can take a temperature logger three feet away, clear off the snow. And that temperature logger in the cleared area will essentially follow atmospheric temperatures where the one under the snow will be flat. It won't change at all. Hmm. Um, and so what happens is when these trees, these yellow cedar in particular, they tend to wake up in the spring really early, earlier than most species. There's a lot of free nutrients available, especially nitrogen in mm. early season. Um, this occurs uh, for a variety of reasons, decomposition over the winter, you know, in deep soils and things like that. And so they tend to wake up fairly early. And that's always been an advantage for them. So they, they tend to be shallow rooted to take advantage of nutrients that have decomposed, they also tend to live in wet areas. They're shallow rooted, so they don't drown. So they have all their sort of roots right near the surface, right under that blanket, and all is fine until the blanket disappears. And the blanket can disappear. And if there's if it's just warm, like if it's just, you know, just a sort of a pleasant spring, mm -hmm. there's no problems. And in fact, we see yellow cedar populations in areas where there's no snow, but there are areas like on the west coast of Vancouver Island where there's never cold snaps either. Uh or the outer coast of Washington where there's never cold snaps either. And they're fine. They, mm. they, they're perfectly happy. But if you don't have that snow and you do get a cold snap, so an Arctic air outburst or something comes over the Northern Rockies. And, and this does happen, you know, every other, every few years, 
that's that soil will freeze. And those, the fine roots of the tree, which are metabolically active at that point in time, die. Mm. They can't handle freezing. And so the tree loses all its fine roots and come summer, it's unable to take up water. And this is in a very wet environment. Mm. So that's kind of counterintuitive too, <laughs> but it just doesn't have the roots to do it because they're all dead. And so you'll see trees just pop off um, turn orange and, and die. Sometimes it takes a few of these events, sure. depending on, you know, if snow is patchy on the ground, but they'll die. Um, and so this, this sort of colder soils in a warmer world was actually summed up by, um, some researchers at Harvard who in the early 2000s did a lot of work, um, shoveling snow, <laughs> their interns, <laughs> their students probably did yeah. a lot of work shoveling snow, <laughs> but they had this wonderful paper name called colder soils in a warmer world. Wow. And that's what we're seeing. We see the loss of snow. And while the average temperature may be a little bit higher, you get those drops in cold. And so the loss, it's essentially a loss of a habitat, mm. a, a habitat, both for animals and plants. And I study for plants, but it's a loss of that subnival habitat. You've lost that sort of steady state winter. And many species can't tolerate it, and yellow cedar is one of them. Wow. I mean, that's terrifying just because here's a lifetime, a single human lifetime. And like you said, it's not just seedlings. It's large trees. And when you see pictures, like, for instance, if you go to your website and look at some of this stuff, it is alarming to see. I Whole mean, islands oof. could be dead, yeah. Yeah, and like... You know, the the lack of awareness, too, makes you kind of question, like, how many awful dynamics are playing out sort of out of sight, out of mind, or just where people don't have the time or the wherewithal to go like, oh, that sucks. But hell, if I know what's going on kind of thing. It's true. We've I actually have a graduate student. Her name's Annalise Rujans, uh, working on this right now. And she's actually compiling all, all the snow loss studies and tree mortality studies around the world. Oh, and, wow. And there's examples and you can find them. So this is not an isolated single tree sort of thing. So two things are striking. One is how when you do look, you tend to find these sorts of things. And the East Coast for listeners on the East Coast of US and Canada, like Quebec, Ontario, Maine, that's where um, yellow birch tends to die or have mass or fairly mass mortality, or at least you know, die backs when it loses snow, for example. Norway, maple, a uh, few other species in Europe. But then there's also big areas where we don't know what's going on and we know they're losing snow. It's like Eastern Asia, um, Japan, very little has been done on this. There are some people working on it um, for sure, but very little attention has been paid to the loss of the snow habitat and its impact on trees. Yeah. Yeah. And in reading your work, I mean, you kind of hinted at it there. It's not like this is something going on throughout the entire range of yellow cedar. There's places like Vancouver Island where they're doing fine. There's parts in the northern range where there is some, you know, gains, I guess. But there are areas of loss. And it brings up this idea, you know, kind of going back to biogeography, that this isn't something that's uniform. You know, you hear about an endangered species or a species on decline. You kind of just picture that it's doing terrible everywhere. But so that's part of what goes on with species is there could be these minor holdouts where they're doing really well. But overall, you're seeing patterns that would make you very concerned for a species in general. And I, I assume based on your work that that's kind of the case right now for yellow cedar. It's a dynamic process. It's a hard one. Uh, we actually went through the endangered species listing process for yellow cedar. It was nominated and went through a full formal review uh, where a whole bunch of people were brought in to prepare various studies addressing aspects of management and decline and mortality and growth. Uh, and they ultimately decided not to list it. Hmm. Uh, and it's a hard decision to make. And I think I came out of that with a much better understanding of how those decisions occur and also how 
difficult it can be in those contexts, right? You have this species which ranges from California to Alaska. In plenty of places, it is doing fine. In plenty of places, it's dying very quickly. We expect those places where it's dying to expand, but we have other areas where it's probably okay, like the outer coast of Vancouver Island. Mm. And then there's nurseries which raise these things, especially with plants, right? Like you can just raise thousands of these plants fairly easily. And so they ultimately decided not to list it and spend their endangered species resources elsewhere, so to speak. And it is a hard decision to make, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I get why it's hard, you know, (laughs) and I get why sometimes people say, you know, it's, but it's doing fine here. So we don't need to just close the whole thing down. And, and so I, I have an appreciation of the nuances of that discussion, I guess. And yellow cedar is a great example because it's clearly getting killed by climate change. It's one of the great ones where, as an example, there's no other argument. There's it, the proximal mm. cause and the ultimate cause are essentially the same. There isn't some argument because it's not really climate change. It's you know X, Y, or Z, and right. the scientists would say, well, yeah, but that's ultimately caused by climate. And you can, you know, you can't you can't muddy the waters too much. It's warmer snow has turned to rain. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is a great, great example of a climate change threatened species, which is economically, culturally, and ecologically pretty darn important. And so sort of figuring out how to use resources to best protect it and best understand it and best deal with this challenge is a difficult one. Yeah. And it's really interesting, I'm sure, as an ecologist that spends a lot of time in the scientific side of things, especially the ecological focus of things, to watch how these processes of like, do we or don't we list a species? How are these decisions made? Because it brings up, you know, these are values that humans have to kind of instill. And there's a lot of values placed on this tree. You know, you got First Nations people that have used this for millennia. Millennia. Yeah. Carving, using it for canoes and stuff. But then you have, you know, the more modern aspects of logging and the economic importance of sort of the logging culture and community that you know probably bolsters a lot of these communities uh you know economically but then you have ecotourism so you know it it really i think for most people that just focus on the science seems like an easy decision to make but i can only imagine sort of the bureaucracy that has to go you know good and bad obviously you want to consider the human element of this but it's got to be so eye-opening and and kind of you know, those moments where you go, oh, I'm only a mere fraction of this decision-making process. (laughs) Well, that's exactly what it comes down to is being a mere fraction of the decision-making process. And I should say, this isn't a species which we expect to go extinct tomorrow. So this Mm -hmm. isn't, this isn't an endangered rhino or something where clearly sort of survival of the species in the near term depends on the stopping of every human activity. This is something where we can think about it a little bit. But it kind of goes back to our earlier conversation of, of you can't take people out of the mix in, in a world. We are one more species in an ecosystem. And so I appreciate the fact that the decisions are not always made entirely with sort of this only conservation mindset in mind, which is what I would do. If right. I were, like, so, like, yeah, I like get that it. is where I come from. And that is definitely my number one value. But I appreciate that these processes do take into those other uses into account um, because we do have to create a sustainable world too. And by that, we have to use stuff and we have to live with other people too. And so if we go in and, yeah. and if everything was shut down, it would probably cause some backlash that wouldn't, it wouldn't be sustainable in the long run, just from a social perspective, I don't think. And, and so this was, a, it was a very interesting sort of 
bureaucratic exercise. Um, I think it was real valuable because it brought the need for conservation to the forefront of the mm-hmm. species. We wouldn't have even had a lot of these studies if it wasn't for that process. And it may get to that point in the future, in which case we have all this stuff lined up. So it's a very eye-opening experience. And just because we didn't get it listed, I don't think the effort was wasted. Uh, I think we learned a lot about the conservation of the species and ways to perpetuate the species in the absence of major legislative protection, which will be valuable, you know, going forward. And then if more protection does become available, then we have that much more knowledge to build on, you know, in the future. So it wasn't like the fact that it wasn't ultimately listed, despite a clear conservation concern, doesn't mean that the work was not worth it. That's a really good perspective to bring into the conversation here, because if we waited for governments to collectively get their heads out of their asses, uh, I think there would be (laughs) we're going to be in bad shape. Right. And it's it's not showing much sign of changing very fast, at least not with the world powers. But what you've just demonstrated here is you've made this part of the lexicon in the conversation and you get interested groups and different parties that could then think of sort of the private citizen action that could be done to, you know, protect certain areas, maybe foster some sort of like breeding program or anything really, you know, it's not to say that the, the it didn't get listed. We're done. Walk away. This is doomed. It, it, it does kind of get people fired up, but in a, just a different way in a different route towards not necessarily success, but doing something for the species. Yeah. And I don't think saying, success, defining success is hard in a conservation (laughs) context when you can't control the variables, right? Like what if we had managed to, well, what if the, what if the petition had gone through and actually this, the petition for that particular species was brought forth by a small private tour company. Wow. They noticed that it was uh, dying all over the place and they pushed it in and it got through every level of review. It was up to the final level of review essentially. And so a private company did make the difference. A small private wow. organization did make the difference. But the larger point is what had happened if, if their petition had succeeded, you know, if it had been listed, what would have changed? Like in the context of a changing climate where really this thing is threatened by snow loss, which is not something that, you know, we can control, particular, <laughs> which is a climate, a global issue as yeah. opposed to a regional sort of management issue. Like how do you define success? And I think in this case, it's, it's very much a spectrum with not necessarily any endpoints. Um, and so we made it a long way in terms of success. You know, we, we learned a lot about the species. We learned a lot about conservation of the species. Hmm. We got private industry to the table to talk about this. Uh, you know, they, many of those, those organizations were opposed to listing naturally. Um, they were the ones that said, you know, we can go out today and buy 20,000 seedlings. Right. Right. You know, and and that's a fair point. Right. But it got them involved in the conversation. It definitely raised the awareness uh, in the region as well as in the scientific literature and in the management community. So I think in many ways it was a success, even if the endpoint wasn't there. And, and that could happen anywhere, right? Like yeah. if anybody, if any community organization or individual has a species that they are concerned about, you can raise awareness of that through maybe not legislative action, maybe community action or or get your local researcher interested so it starts getting um, some scientific attention or or through the arts or whatever. And, and that will raise the awareness. And that in itself is a success because it raises the starting point for future action, <laughs> right. right? Like it, it, it only gives you a leg up when crap really hits the fan. You, you're that much <laughs> further along. Sure. You know? And so 
I think success should be defined in many of these conservation problems as progress, not an endpoint, because you're never going to get there if you have this endpoint in mind, because by the time you get there, conditions will have changed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, back to the beginning, like things are constantly changing at various rates, some slow, some unfortunately very fast. Those goalposts are going to move. And so success really is progress. It's not necessarily the end. Very valuable points to be made there. And in thinking of that sort of the dynamics of a changing system, right? I mean, you are a disturbance ecologist and we've already outlined that it's this lack of snow that is the major disturbance causing this death of, of these trees, but they're not the only species to be affected by this. And I assume just the death of those trees in and of themselves is a disturbance in and of itself, which is having ramifications through the ecosystem, no doubt. Oh, definitely. So this particular ecosystem is fairly species poor. It's only got a couple dominant tree species there. Um, there are essentially four <laughs> tree <Wow>. species, um, <laughs> depending on how you count them. You might be able to get up to six if you use sort of like very rare species on the landscape, but it's it's a low number. You know, you're counting on one or two hands. And so the loss of this particular species is a big one, um, creates big holes, big canopy gaps. Um, and what we tend to observe is when those gaps open and when that tree dies in the northern half of the range, it'll close in, you know, mm -hmm. it still stays a forest, but it, it just loses the species. There's nothing else to replace it. So you, you end up with more of the same. Mm -hmm. So the, the ecosystem as a whole, um, for those familiar with the species are dominated by Western hemlock and Sitka spruce. Okay. Hem hemlock is often used for pulp. Sitka spruce actually used to be used to be used to build airplanes because oh. it's this nice light thing. Mm. But if you play guitar, there's a very good chance your guitar top is Sitka spruce. Huh. And sometimes skis are made of Sitka spruce. But anyway, it'll fill in. And, and so it's species loss. It's a loss of a species. And yellow cedar has a particular biogeochemistry. And so around it, it tends to be more basic soils and there's species which specialize in those. And you just lose it. So it's sort of this homogenization. So yeah, it, it does have a major effect um, on the ecosystem. But really interestingly, if you move a little further south, there's this other species called Western red cedar, which is not really closely related. Their last common ancestor was 60 or so million years oh, ago, okay. but they look very similar. They have very similar biogeochemistry. Hmm. They exist in the same habitats where they overlap. And where we see yellow cedar dying is where we see the northernmost edge of red cedar advancing. Hmm. So you can go into these stands where there is red cedar in the environment and the yellow will die and there'll be a bunch of dead skeletons way above you, you know, standing up 100, you know, 30 meters above you or something. And there'll be a bunch of red cedar on the ground. And so there's this replacement going on. A little further south, you'll see fully mature red cedar with dead yellow cedar everywhere. So it's, it's almost like the species replacement. And it's like this mortality is facilitating the migration of another species hmm. north. It, it's, it's unable to move until, it's, you know, until the competition is gone. And it's, a, it's just a really fascinating example of life adapting and, and sort of life shifting and moving and sloshing around on the planet with climate. You know, not fast enough to keep pace with human-caused climate change, but, but it's still occurring. And so it's this... It's a pretty cool little story, and and it it does have human impacts too. That both are used by um, First Nations people for art and building, and both are economically valuable, and both have unique and ecological impacts. So we know where the northernmost red cedars are, and they're in dead yellow cedar stands. Wow. And, and there's a study system or a study location I have um, in Southeast Alaska where there's this uh, large pass. So, so it's not super high, but you drive up a big hill. You, um, 
up to about 300 meters. So a thousand feet up or so you have a flat, a little flat area and you drop back down the other side. And as you drive up, you're driving through a red cedar forest because this is in Southern Southeast Alaska. And as you drive up the hill, the red cedar gets shorter and shorter and shorter hmm. and the yellow cedar start appearing, but they're dead. And so you have this um, sort of, you can just watch the red cedar sort of moving uphill and then you get to the top and there's no red cedar and the yellow cedar are just starting to die because they're just losing snow up there. You drive down the other side and you see the same thing in reverse. Wow. You see yellow cedar, they're healthy, all of a sudden start dying, and you see red cedar creeping uphill to take their place. And so this, it's this really interesting um, species replacement going on and species migration going on naturally, which presumably would have played out over thousands of years um, if we weren't given the climate a kick in the butt. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's not going to keep pace. These things aren't migrating as fast as we're losing snow. Um, but it is an, a window, I think, into what happened in the past, you know, over longer time scales. Right. And just from an ecological perspective, as someone that studies these dynamics, I mean, here it is playing out and you know, at least enough to be able to detect that and say like, oh, this is actually an, a line in the sand, so to speak, of where these dynamics truly are at their most dynamic. And I mean, there's got to be moments where you, you kind of just have to appreciate the I want to put this gently, but appreciate the big natural experiment that we've really lit a fire under. It's true. Um, you know, as someone who studies rapid changes in slow growing ecosystems for, to put it in one way anyway, um, it definitely accelerates those sorts of changes in some ways, it gives lots of opportunity for study. Um, and it's unfortunately the the common finding is that yes, things can adapt to a changing climate, but they can't adapt this fast. Mm. And so we see that all over the place. Um, but the place you see it the most is on range edges, you know, where mm. you're seeing either contractions or expansions. And so that's what's got me into is range edges and figuring out where these edges are, not just to study it from an ecological point of view, but also from a science communication point of view and a way to interact with the public and get people interested in range edges. Because again, that that's where you see the fastest change. That's right. where you're, you're expecting to see big consequential events, you know, on warmer range edges, for example, often in the South in the Northern hemisphere, you expect to see a fire and a lack of recovery. And we do see that a lot. For example, where I am now in Colorado in the front range, uh, we'll have a fire that burns down above Boulder and you won't get a lot of regeneration at the lower edge. It's just too warm and dry now. Hmm. And so you just don't get that recovery. And so what we're seeing is a contraction of trees or certain species anyway, uh, uphill into cooler climates. Uh, but the same thing will play out at the Southern range edge in warmer environments and Southern grasslands, for example. And in the North, what you hope to see is an expansion North or, or, you know, into cooler climes anyway, right? Often I use North and South sort of as yeah, shorthand, you know, it's, easier, it's not right? ideal, right? <laughs> right? Like it should be cooler, <laughs> wetter, sort of warmer, drier, but you know, North, South, what you'd hope to see is expansion. Or so like the lodgepole example earlier, you know, you get that Northern expansion and, and so it's a fascinating place to look for change from a scientific point of view, but it also is one of those things that communicates fairly well with people, yeah. or at least I hope it does, yeah. uh, it, because everyone's seen a tree, everyone's you know seen plants, and we get the concept of, of northern and southern range edges, and it's something that people can do. So, for example, I, 
I recently led a Nat Geo expedition to find, we found the southernmost tree in the world, like the last one. And I've been using that as a way to talk, especially to students, um, not just college, but younger, about like why things are where they are and what they're doing. So the southernmost tree in the world, it's on this northeast facing slope on Ilo Hornos, which is the southernmost island in the Cape Horn archipelago. Mm. It's this, it's called a, a Magellanic beach, or it's a, it's a Nothofagus petulans. Oh, nice. It's 42 years old, so we almost have the same birthday. It's, a little older than I am. Um, uh. <laughs> it's not very tall. It's only about half a meter tall. It's quite long. It just doesn't get very tall, and then it grows laterally because it's so windy um, hmm. down there. It can't actually look like a tree, but it's just this nice communication point. And so mm-hmm. I can go in and I can say, you know, has, who's seen trees? And like, what do you think is going to happen to trees in the context of climate change? And then we can start saying, well, this is the last one. What's going to happen? you know, here. And if you go back to this spot a hundred years from now, what are you going to see? Cause there's nothing South of here. Right. <laughs> it's, it's Antarctica. Right. Like th- th- that's it. And, and so, you know, we can sort of talk about, it's a handle, right? It's like, it's like a mental handle for people who don't study ecology and don't think about these changes or don't really have a way to wrap their head around these changes. That's proven to be both a lot of fun uh, and a good story, um, you know, getting there and sort of the expedition, but also, has a educational and an ecological benefit to it uh, is that long-term study. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, don't discount the impact it has on people that even think about this stuff all the time. Cause I, <laughs> I remember seeing that article and just kind of, it was like a head scratcher. I'm like, Oh yeah, there, there's gotta be a last one. I guess like it, it ends somewhere, right? There has to be a last one. Um, it should be out in next month's magazine. I'm told as well. So nice. um, it should be out again with some new pictures, which should be fun. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that. And, it's a story that hopefully gets people thinking exactly like that. Like there has to be a southernmost tree in the world, right? There has to be a northernmost tree in the world. And in fact, we think we know where it is. Um, there's this nature reserve on the Tymer Peninsula in Russia, and they believe they've isolated the northernmost tree in the world, or <laughs> northernmost patch of trees in the world, which is a larch, or the Hurrian larch tree. Huh. Uh, but there also must be a highest tree in the world, right? Sure. There must be a highest plant in the world. There must be a northernmost, like there's all sorts of things. And it it's not just the global scale either. There's got to be a northernmost sunflower. In the world, <laughs> right. Right? There's got to be a northernmost sugar maple in the world or yeah. a northernmost blue flag iris in the world, right? Like whatever species you see when you walk outside, there has to be one, which is the furthest north. And there has to be one just the furthest south, which is this big thing I'm pushing now with National Geographic. Esri, which is a GIS company, Mm. and uh, iNaturalist, which is a community science organization, where we have collected, or I've collected every um, known occurrence, research grade known occurrence through this community science platform, iNaturalist, of every species in North America, and isolated Mm. the northernmost and the southernmost. So, if you go to my website, you can get to the link, but it's this um, story map where it'll show you wherever you are, as long as you're in North America currently, we're expanding to the globe, but currently it's just North America. You can see what species have their northernmost occurrence in your location Wow! or the southernmost occurrence in your location. And no matter where you are, there's one close to sure, you. Yeah. There's, there's records everywhere. And anyone can do this, right? So like anyone can download this, this app. It's iNaturalist. It's super easy. Uh, it's free. I mean, instructions are on the webpage. It's it's sponsored by National Geographic and the California Academy of Sciences. You go out, you take a picture of the species you're interested in. It'll help you identify it. 
And then a couple other experts will look at it, say you're right, and then bam, it's considered a record. This is it occurs here, you know. And so anyone who wants to find the northernmost whatever they like can do it. Uh, can go out and immediately start con- uh, contributing to this sort of exploration, which is pretty darn neat. I was actually looking up in Illinois, because I know in Illinois, yeah. um, yellow crown beard. It's this beautiful white uh, aster, sort of looks like a, a, a dandelion on steroids, kind of. <laughs> um, the northernmost occurrence is quite close to you uh, in Illinois. So oh, if you wanted to set a record for that particular species, you can go out and and start looking for it, hunt it down and, and upload the record. And huh. all of a sudden, our knowledge of that species grows, right? And through those sorts of dynamic maps we can say, well, this species appears to be dying off. You know, someone went back and visited the southernmost location and they're all dead, you know, and, and that won't be conclusive, right? You'll have to go out and do actual sure, research sure. to determine, you know, if that's really going on, but it gives us a clue. And it's kind of like yellow cedar. If, if someone hadn't brought it up, you know, the world wouldn't have known. Right. Um, same on the northern end. If you go and you say, oh, look, at I found it, you know, 30 kilometers north of the last record. You know, then we can go and say, is it migrating? Like, well, why is it succeeding and other things not? And yeah. the only way we can tackle these problems if we, is if we do get people interested in exploration and range edges and how stuff moves and sort of the dynamic nature of life, rather than saying, well, this is the only place this occurs and it, you know, it's just dying. You know, <laughs> it, it, it it's it's a little more, uh, if anything, I, I want to say optimistic. I, I, I think sure. I'm an optimistic person at, at heart and it allows us to say, look at these things are dynamic and it'll get people involved in tracking that dynamism. And then some species won't be, and that's bad. And we need to know what those are. And some species will be, and that's good. And we need to know why they're, why they're succeeding. Yeah. And that's such an amazing project to get people involved with. And I, you know, I sound like a broken record on this, but you know, boots on the ground, people getting involved. This is not just for the scientists or the conservationists behind closed doors to make these decisions. This is getting people outside thinking about this stuff. And what's great is it's natural history. It's observation, which I think is so sorely lost from a lot of the bigger scientific realm of things or has been. I think it's coming back thanks to programs like iNaturalist. But just getting people thinking about the dynamic nature of ranges in general, because like you said, you can find these patterns, you can make awareness, you know, on a bigger scale of, of patterns that might not be as easily detected if only one person's trying to apply for all these grants to do it. But also just, you know, going back to conservation, these range edges being so dynamic, these are the species that are experiencing ups, downs, fluctuations, novelty, and might have the genetics in some instances, to withstand what we're throwing at this planet and don't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's incredible opportunity in there. And I like what you said about natural history, because I I agree 100% that when, if we lose an eye towards simple observation and empirical sort of, this is what we see, this is what we observe, that sort of common knowledge, we lose a lot. Um, we lose a perspective that is sorely needed when trying to think about change at, over large areas. There's just not enough research scientists to become experts. And, and as academics, you end up moving all over the place and, you know, you, you don't, you're uprooted and you're trained to think sort of independence of, of sort of natural power. It's just, it, it's just not as conducive to building that sort of natural history that Joe, who has hunted the same area for 40 years, 
has, you know, right. they'll have an entirely different suite of knowledge and bringing those things together with things like iNaturalist and these sorts of projects where people can contribute to our understanding of ranges is just so, so important uh, and so desperately needed. I mean, there are over 19,000 species in this database, this research grade database I've put together. Clearly we need everybody involved. Um, and it becomes a game, you know, yeah. anyone can go out and say, look, I found the northernmost bald cypress. You know, I know where it is. You know, you know what I mean? Like everyone can do that sort of exploration, get that sort of gamification going. You know, right. we have um, leaderboards and it's not just terrestrial. Um, uh, recently, another map was created for marine species. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, doing the exact same thing. Um, so this can be done you know, wherever you live. And it does contribute to our understanding of how how species are responding to climate change. And as you say, the genetic resources out there that we just have no idea about, um, why is this particular purple flower like succeeding and migrating through this habitat, whereas other ones aren't? You know, we need to understand that. And without knowing even where to start, it's it's a much bigger challenge. But it's something that we can figure out if if people will get involved. Yeah. And I mean, think of the range maps that you see printed in even more recent field guides. I mean, INAT is going to change those in a big way. And it's people in the community are doing that. And that's a first, I think, in in, in a very long time that we have kind of gone back to this sort of natural history. So, I mean, it's great. This is such an amazing project. And I'm happy to hear it. it's expanding to, you know, other ecosystems and probably different types of life. I mean, you could do this for any type of organism on this planet. Uh, you could do it for anything. Yeah. The the amount of informational power we can get um, just from somebody with a phone these days is unreal. Yeah. Um, and this sort of crowdsourced science is really going to revolutionize how science is done. The biggest challenge I think we have in that is just getting people excited and interested <laughs> yeah. in it. And so I think these sorts of flagship expeditions like to the southernmost tree or or other re- like this, um, there was recently an incredibly awesome resurvey of Chimborazo in South America, where uh, a team retraced the state the, the steps of von, von Humboldt oh, for wow. 200 years later. Just the coolest story I've seen in a long time. Like these sorts of things that can get people interested in in history and and what they can do and records they can set and ways to sort of plant their flag on like this is X, Y, or Z. The more we can sort of capture people's imagination with good stories, the better a chance we have of of capturing a lot of people um, and and getting them working together towards a common goal of conservation. Right, and again, it's it's this emphasis that you know not everyone has to go into the sciences to be a part of this. I mean, this can be yeah, just a exactly. hobby that you do on the weekends or after work or something like that. It's it, everyone can have a stake in this, and that's uh, that's a vital uh, reminder to give to the public time and time again. <laughs> And you don't have to be in, you know, some pristine Alaskan wilderness to do it. There are dozens of records to be set in downtown New York City. Right. Uh, there are many species found, in, especially in cities. There are many species which exist pretty far north of their normal habitat because cities tend to be a little bit warmer. Uh, anywhere on the continent, you are close to a known range record. And often they're fairly easy to beat because uh, iNaturalist is, you know, only a decade old or whatever it is. <laughs> right. And so there's a lot of species for which there are very few records. And that's a wonderful opportunity because that means not only do you get a chance to find the northernmost X, Y, or Z or the southernmost X, Y, or Z, you are 
adding a large percentage to our knowledge of that species. You know, yeah. if we only know where it exists in a couple places and you add another one, that's like you just doubled where we know where it exists. So any ordinary citizen, anybody halfway interested can make a huge impact. And it's a wonderful way to learn about your local ecosystem. I guarantee once you go out and you take the time to take a picture of it and upload the file, it, again, it's very easy, but but once you take the time to do that, you'll remember what it is. Sure. Right. And so a couple weekends, you'll know your ecosystem infinitely better than you used to know it yeah. and contribute to our understanding of the world at a scientific level. That's fantastic. So in keeping with this idea of getting people involved, if people want to find out more about the incredible work you and your lab are doing or find out more about this community science project that you've uh, initiated here for you know, moving into the future, where do you recommend they go looking? And I will put up links, so don't worry too much about remembering the exact URLs, but where, where, where can they find more? So the easiest way would be just to go to my website, which is uh, brianbuma.com. Uh, where you can find a link to all the stuff we've published on this, as well as a link to this uh, project, this Edges of All Life project. Or you can simply Google the Edges of All Life, and that will pop up um, the Esri story map where you'll find the maps and you can zoom in on your um, uh, on your location. So the way the way you interface with this project is that map pops up Google Maps and uh, you simply zoom in on where you are and you can click on any of the dots and it'll tell you what that species is. Nice. Well, again, I will save everyone the trouble and uh, put up links directly (laughs) those in the show notes. But Dr. Buma, thank you so much for talking to us about this. This is monumental work and hopefully very thought provoking and engaging work for a lot of people listening. So again, thank you for taking the time to tell us about it. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. I, I am so excited about the fact that people can now easily get involved with truly global scale research. Definitely. Just in their backyards and truly contribute to global scale understanding of how species shift with climate change as easy as um, as an app. So it's a, it's a pretty wonderful opportunity for everybody. And yeah, I hope it um, demystifies um, the process of science for some, and I hope it gets people excited in science for everyone. That and, you know, when people say, I hate where I live, like getting to know the organisms in your area makes you like it a little bit more, I think, in my opinion. So it's a, it can connect you to home a little bit better. <laughs> it was one of the biggest surprises when I first made that map, which is about a year ago now, and it's been updated several times since, of course, because we constantly update the records. I kind of, I don't know, I, I shouldn't have thought this, but I did, <laughs> that, <laughs> that most of the records would be in sort of mountainy areas, wilderness areas, sort of the Appalachian Mountains or upstate New York. And to see that there are sort of records everywhere to be beaten, regardless of whether you're living in some little town in South Dakota or you're in downtown New York City or you're in Colorado or you're in Oregon, there is something near you, which is interesting, and we don't know much about it. And I can guarantee, almost guarantee you within a 20 minute drive, you can find <laughs> multiple records to beat. That, that was pretty amazing to see. Oh, that's great. Well, that's a great sentiment to end on. Again, thank you so much for talking with us. Hang in there, stay healthy and keep up the great work. Thanks very much. You too. All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Incredible work, isn't it? Really, really important to try to understand how forests and other ecosystems are going to change as our disturbances only get more and more intense and severe. I thank Dr. Buma for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And of course, you can find all of the relevant links for everything we discussed over in the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. 
If you're enjoying conversations like this and you like them to come out for free each and every week, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. Not only can you help ensure a future for this show, but you're going to get a lot of great kickbacks in the process, including stickers, access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month, and even a producer credit on the In Defense of Plants podcast. How cool is that? Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. I literally could not be doing this podcast without the support from my patrons over there, and I thank them so much for helping out. You can also pick up merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants. Or pick up a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. It's available wherever books are sold. Otherwise, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back, because as always, I've got a ton of great conversations waiting just over the horizon. But that is it for me this week. I thank you for listening. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.